0: Hello, and welcome to the Foundations Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Link. Last time we talked about how to study the Bible, and today we're going to look at, uh, well, how we look at things. There are some hard things to understand in the Bible, and we're going to look at them and try to understand how we view the world when we look through an eternal lens versus looking through the lens of Western civilization. So today we're going to talk about slavery, polygamy, and other bad things in the Bible. But first, a short advertisement, if you're interested in seeing how kids are developing the skills to defend their faith, how they learn to research and know what they believe and why, if you're interested in homeschooling or like watching junior high and high school students work to improve through competition, then check out my documentary film called If My Judges Are Ready, it's a competitive speech and debate documentary available on Amazon Prime, Christian Cinema, and other streaming platforms. You can visit SpeechDebateDoc.com for more information. That's SpeechDebateDoc.com. Okay, a couple of ground rules for this episode as we begin. Um, The Bible contains history books, and those books record history as it happened, not as we would like it to be. The events recorded in these books are what happened, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Just because something is recorded in the Bible does not mean that God approves of what happened. In addition, we look at things in light of our experiences growing up in Western civilization as part of the New Covenant, and in a world that has been changed by the presence of Jesus Christ and his influence over the last several centuries. Our lives and our priorities and customs are very, very different from the ancient world. Now, I'm not trying to excuse sinful behavior or bad actions. I'm saying that some of our norms and expectations differ from what people in that time expected and accepted. So, let's get started with slavery. I'm not going to read every verse that mentions slavery, but just enough to kind of get a gist of what the Bible says about it. Once again, I challenge you to do your own reading and research. Always do your own reading and research. So let's dive in. Does the Bible say slavery is okay? Leviticus 25, and following says, The Israelites can buy slaves, but not if they are from Israel. It states, As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property." You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. Exodus 21, 2-6 talks about how Israeli slaves should be treated, specifically when they should be released and how families should be handled. Starting with verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve for six years, then in the seventh, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. If he arrives alone, he is to leave alone. If he arrives with a wife, his wife is to leave with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children belong to her master and the man must leave alone. But if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I do not want to leave as a free man, his master is to bring him to the judges and then bring him to the door or doorpost. His master will pierce his ear with an owl and he will serve his master for life. They will actually put him up next to the doorpost and take the owl and drive it through the ear into the wood of the doorpost, basically um, signifying that he is now part of that household forever. So that's a couple of Old Testament passages, uh, but it's not just the Old Testament. The New Testament talks about slavery in what can only be described as positive terms. Colossians 4.1 says, "'Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven.'" Ephesians 6, five, "'Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ.'" Titus two nine and 10, Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. 1 Timothy 6, 1-2 Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. So, why does God give instructions about how to buy and sell people and encourage slaves to obey their masters and to actually serve other Christians who might be their masters even better? if God doesn't think that slavery is an okay thing? Well, the proper understanding of biblical slavery requires a proper understanding of history. And if you think of slaves in these passages um, as though they are the same as the slaves in United States history, you would be making a mistake. In the Old Testament passages, there are two types of slaves, and there are rules about how to treat them. The first type is indentured servitude. People who owed debts and had no ability to pay them off could sell themselves to their debtors and, using their own labor, pay off the debts they owed. And every seventh year, these debts were canceled and the people were free. And the second type were foreign prisoners of war. There is a third sort of kind called the Nedalim. They were a clerical order who served the Levites during menial labor for them, they assisted in the temple. Now, with any slave, if they were abused, they were to be set free immediately. For those who indentured themselves and in the Nettolum, their station was voluntary. Now, for the war prisoner, that's, that's not so much a voluntary thing. This was not the wholesale capture and sale of humans. In fact, at no time does God command that anyone should go and take a slave. Let me repeat that. There is no passage where God instructs his followers to go capture a free person, just minding their own business, and forcibly make them a slave. God did have laws that governed how slaves should act and how masters should act. New Testament slavery was very similar. We have the same indentured service that existed and many people found themselves the unwilling slaves of Rome. They were property under Roman rule. Slavery existed in history. In fact, exists now. The Bible doesn't ignore it, but it also doesn't treat it how our 20th century Western civilization minds would expect. The Bible is not concerned with righting every wrong in the fallen world. The Bible was not written to deal with the issue of slavery. It was written to show us regardless of our status, how to be reconciled to God. In fact, the suffering of people on earth is often cast into an eternal perspective. There are some passages in the New Testament that shed some light on the perspective of God on suffering in life. First being James chapter 4, starting at verse 14. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like smoke that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live to do this or that. The King James Version actually uses the word vapor instead of smoke. That's where we get the phrase, life is like a vapor. More important than any personal comfort or station is how you act toward others, regardless of where your station is. God largely lets man do as he wishes. It's the wonderful and terrible thing about free will. We can agree that Jesus had the power to fix everything wrong in the world, right? He could have healed everyone. He could have fed everyone. He He could have freed every slave, could have stopped all suffering on this planet, but he didn't do it. And he still doesn't do it today. In Matthew chapter four, you see Jesus tempted in three ways. He was tempted to provide for physical needs, his own. He was tempted to become someone known for doing miracles and signs and tempted with political power. And each time he refused, you can actually find other passages in the new Testament in the gospels where these temptations were in front of him, um, outside of the the temptations there in Matthew 4. So why didn't Jesus want to be a political power? Why didn't he want to do those things? We talked some about the political power before, but ultimately it wasn't his purpose. Luke 19.10 sums up what his purpose was. It says, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. God's perspective is always eternal. We're caught up in the momentary crisis, the fleeting, or even enduring pain. God knows that eventually we're going to be with him in eternity, where this momentary affliction will be nothing but a memory. Um, I've seen preachers and even some famous ones, you know, they have this rope and it's this 200 foot long rope. And they talk about like all the things you accomplish in your lifetime here on earth. And it's this little tiny, you know, half an inch of this 200 foot long rope. It's, It's such a fleeting moment. That we're actually on this planet. God knows that eventually we will be with him in eternity, where this momentary affliction will be nothing but a memory. Romans eight twenty eight says that all things, not some things, not most things, not only the good things, but all things will work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. It's hard to understand when you're in the throes of the pain, you're in throes of grief, when you're in slavery, In Genesis 37, Joseph, son of Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, was sold by his brothers into slavery. Why? Well, so that one day he could end up in a position to save his family. And in doing so, save the nation of Israel. Joseph went from slave to prisoner, to leader in Pharaoh's court, to savior of his family. From there, Israel grows large in Egypt, and they are enslaved again, which provides the impetus for them to go back to the promised land in the Exodus. All 12 tribes returned to the promised land. A little aside here, there's a great film I want to tell you about. It's called Patterns of Evidence, Exodus. If you have not seen this documentary, I cannot recommend it enough. It's just wonderful. If you're interested in biblical history, especially around the Exodus, watch this movie as soon as you can. It's Patterns of Evidence, Exodus. Okay, so Joseph was a slave. All of Israel became slaves, and slavery is not a good thing. Even when God uses this not good thing for his purposes. Remember, 828 says, All things are used. While the Bible doesn't command an end slavery specifically, it does contain passages which will lead those who follow them to free any slaves they might own and work to free others. If you truly love your neighbor as yourself, the only way you can maintain slaves is if you do not see them as human. In fact, at every turn, the Bible calls for humane treatment of slaves and servants and repeatedly says, we are to be judged under the same God. 1 Timothy 6 describes slaves and masters as brothers. In the United States, it is the Bible and Christian faith which played a huge part in leading to eventually the ending of our own slave trade. Many prominent abolitionists were believers. There was a theological divide between abolitionists and Christian slave owners. Abolitionists based their beliefs on passages like Galatians 3:28, 28 that says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When they read Ephesians 6, they didn't stop with the first five, but read on. 5, which says, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. But verse 6 says, Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to the people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive back from the Lord. And the masters treat your slaves the same way without threatening them, but because you know that their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism in him. Whatever good we do, whether as a slave or a free person, we will receive back from the Lord. See, God is not concerned with our station in life. He is concerned with our spiritual health. That may not be something that we want to hear all the time, but I'll say it again. God is not concerned with your station in life. He is more concerned with your spiritual health. 1 Timothy 1, through 9-11, We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who killed their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel, concerning the glory of the blessed God which was entrusted to me. Slave traders are listed next to other sinners and described as something that is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel. If the Bible says that slavery is fine, why are those who trade in slaves considered contrary to what conforms to the gospel? 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 21, Were you called while you were a slave? Then don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. You know, he's specifically talking about indentured servants here. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves as people. These are obviously indentured servants he's talking about, and they're encouraged not only to get free, but they're encouraged not to sell themselves back into slavery again. In the book of Philemon, Paul urges freeing the slave Onesimus, starting in verse 8. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ, Jesus, appeal to you for my son Onesimus. So they're asking him to do what is right. What is right? Free the slave Onesimus. Now we can see from these passages that we've read that Paul obviously does not like slavery, but his purpose is not to right all the wrongs in the world, but instead it's to lead churches he works with to make disciples. Here's something to consider from an Answers in Genesis article. The Bible recognizes that slavery is a reality in this sin-cursed world and doesn't ignore it but instead gives regulations for good treatment by both masters and servants and reveals they were equal under Christ. You see, slavery is real. It was happening in the Old Testament. It was happening in the New Testament, and it happens today. The Bible didn't ignore it. It addresses how slaves and masters should act. And in the end, the Bible leads to freeing slaves. When you follow what the Bible says, when you truly believe it and truly follow it, you cannot own slaves. Okay? So let's talk about polygamy. Polygamy is the state of marriage to more than one spouse. Normally in history, that means one man married to multiple women. Nowhere in the Bible does it explicitly condemn polygamy. And some of the most prominent figures in the Old Testament had more than one wife. So why can't we have polygamous marriages now? In fact, there are some people who think we can. One commentary said, the question of polygamy is an interesting one in that most people today view polygamy as immoral, while the Bible nowhere explicitly condemns it. The first instance of polygamy slash bigamy in the Bible was that of Lamech in Genesis 4.19. Lamech married two women. Several prominent men in the Old Testament were polygamists, including Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, and others, they all had multiple wives. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, which were essentially wives of a lower status, according to 1 Kings 11.3. So what are we to do with these instances of polygamy in the Old Testament? While the Bible doesn't condemn it, it doesn't condone it either. In fact, from the beginning, the clear pattern of civilization prescribed by God was one man and one woman. Genesis 2, starting in verse 22, Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. The Bible doesn't condone polygamy, but it does describe it. The Bible is a book of history and polygamy existed. So, why did polygamy exist? Well, part of it was the status of women. Um, a woman without a husband or a son has no honorable way of making a living in those times. They ended up as prostitutes or begging or scavenging food. You can read in the book of Ruth, who gleaned the fields after they were harvested. Unmarried women had a life of hardship. And obviously there's also a desire for more wealth. And if you have more wealth, you need more people to tend the farm and to take care of things. See, wealth there isn't money in a bank. It's actually how many cattle you own. It's how big your property is. People with more than one wife were most likely wealthy people because that meant more people they had to take care of and people with large herds and large amounts of land needed more people to tend them. And then there were kings. A lot of times kings were married to more than one woman for political purposes. That's actually how Solomon got 700 wives. So from a Focus on the Family article, it says, If you study these biblical instances of polygamy in detail, you'll discover that none of them is portrayed in a positive light. In every case, the practices of keeping multiple wives results in problems for the king or patriarch in question. In some of the cases, those problems are very serious. If we doubt this, take a closer look at the lives of Abraham, Jacob, and David. Solomon is the best known and most extreme example of this principle. In the end, it was his many wives who led him into idolatry and destroyed his faith in the Lord. Polygamy existed. It was never God's plan. Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 17, says this about kings. He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. Now, we know that even the wisest of men, Solomon, can have this happen when they have multiple wives. 1 Kings chapter 11, starting in verse 3, Solomon had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 who were concubines, and they turned his heart away. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. In the New Testament, Titus talks about elders being husbands of one wife. Now, this really isn't about monogamy or polygamy, but literally it means being a one-woman man. So one woman, not multiple women. Ephesians 5 outlines the roles and relationships in the home. And in every instance, the word used is wife or husband. It's a singular word, not plural. Not wives, not husbands. So here's the kicker. God, just because of how awesome God is, set forth the monogamous marriage as the ideal, and in doing so, set up the allegory of marriage to the relationship between Christ and the church. The illustration that Paul uses in Ephesians 5 God establishes the family unit as one man and one woman, just as the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus does not have another bride, only the church is his bride. Polygamy did exist, but it was never God's plan for families, and it still isn't. So, what about other bad stuff in the Bible? Again, the Bible has books of history that records things that happened. It doesn't cover it up. Our leaders from history were sinful men, yet God used them. He can use us, even as sinful as we are. The fact that this stuff is included in the text actually gives credence to the authenticity of the scriptures. If things had been changed by a later editor or something, they would have removed references to patriarchs doing bad stuff. Instead, we see it all in the text, and we can learn from their mistakes. When you read about behavior that is contrary to biblical principles done by biblical characters, know that is what happened, but those behaviors were not pleasing to God. Now remember, we often look at things through our own experiences, not through the lens of eternity— Bad things happen to people. The earth is a fallen world full of sin and suffering, but life is a vapor. God's plan is not that we each spend eternity suffering either here on earth or separated from him, but instead his plan is that we spend it with him. The Bible says that all things work together for the good of those called according to his purpose. We may not understand how that happens, but we can trust it is true. So next time, we're going to talk about an issue that is of key importance for upcoming generations, and one that has the potential to divide the church as society shifts on this issue. In fact, I saw a recent article that says there's a denomination set to split over this very issue. We're going to look at some LGBTQ issues and how that affects faith and ultimately the church. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating. That helps people find the podcast. If you didn't enjoy the podcast, well, feel free to send me an email and complain. Or if you have questions, send me an email and maybe I can answer them for you on a later show. Send them to scott at scottandlinkmedia.com. Thanks, and I'll talk to you next time.